when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Brex CEO Henrique Dubigras, who found himself playing an important role during the Silicon Valley bank collapse. Now, Brex is what you might call a neobank. You'll hear Henrique use that word. It's not a traditional bank, but rather a financial services provider that helps companies manage how they spend money, corporate cards, travel, expenses, and the rest. In the middle of the SVB collapse, Brex was more than just a spending management company. It was also a safe place to park money. Brex saw billions of deposits in a very short period of time, giving Henrique a bird's eye view of what was happening. And what was happening was not great for the banking system, especially in Silicon Valley. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank sent a shockwave through the tech ecosystem. Lots of companies, including our parent company, Vox Media, banked at SVB. And first, there was the outright panic that led to a run on the bank, then further panic that companies wouldn't be able to make payroll, a wave of relief when the government stepped in to backstop deposits, and then acrimony and confusion as various parties tried to assign blame and, of course, take credit. This all happened in the context of crises across the international banking system. Our own Liz Lopato has been covering it in depth on the site. We'll link to her work in the show notes. I wanted to know what Henrique's perspective on SVB was, both as a fintech CEO and a founder himself, and whether he thought the crisis was rational or just a panic caused by group texts and easy-to-use mobile banking interfaces. I also wanted to know what he thinks happens next in the startup ecosystem, which was pretty much intertwined with SVB. I also wanted to know how much of an opportunity all of this was for Brex. If we know anything, it's that you shouldn't let a good financial crisis go to waste. Is Brex in position here? Of course, it's Decoder, so we also talked about Brex itself, how it's structured, how Kenrique makes decisions, but also how a neobank works, what its market really is, and how it interacts with the traditional financial system. Henrique is a young CEO. He corrected me. I said he was 26. He's 27. And he really surprised me with his depth here. I think he'll probably surprise some of you as well. Okay, Henrique Dubagras, CEO of Brex. Here we go.
Enrique de Burgos, you're the co-founder and CEO of Brex. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. You've got some news to announce, which is very exciting. I want to talk about Silicon Valley Bank with you. That represents both a challenge and a pretty huge opportunity for a company like Brex. And you've just been in the mix of it. So I think you've got some insight there. But let's start at the start. Brex is an enterprise company. Probably a lot of people who don't work in the Valley have not used a Brex card yet. What is Brex? So we do uh, basically spend. You think about it as like all-in-one spend platform. So we started back in 2017 with corporate cards. Uh, that was like the first way of spending that we that we had. Um, after that, we launched kind of like our business accounts, which is kind of like a bank account for businesses, so they can send all other kinds of spending, like ACH, wires, checks, you know, international. Also receive payments up to it, so you can you know actually store money in it. Then after that, we launch uh, spend management software. So this is like expense reimbursements, for example, and all kind of like the software around spending. Now, not only actually spending, but like, can you spend? What are the policies? What are the approvals? All of that, right? So the first one replaced your corporate Amex, you know, let's put it like that. The second one replaced, you know, kind of like a bank account. Uh, the third one, which is Empower, think about it replacing Concur. You know, we also do like bill pay, replacing bill.com. So think of us kind of as like all in one, like spending platform. That set of competitors is really interesting, right? Replace your corporate Amex. You're still issuing credit cards. You have a credit card partner. And so you're kind of replacing some platform in the middle that still will issue an Amex for MasterCard. Replace your travel and expense software. You're still connected to a bank and you've set policies. Replace Concur is actually just replacing Concur. Like Concur is the travel agent there. That's a, It seems like a much bigger kind of project. Is that how you're thinking about your stack, that you've got the interface to things like Amex and your bank, and then you've got to just replace travel software entirely? No, not exactly how we think about it. So um, when we started Brex, one of the things we realized is that a lot of the reasons why you know payments and, uh, you know, and spending was broken was because you always ended up at the bank, right? So in the end, you're always trying to like work with the banks and you know use their technology and their software, and you're always limited by that. So what we did uh, starting in 2017 is we decided to rebuild all the core banking software from scratch. So we don't use any of the software from the bank. We rebuilt all of it, the kind of like core financial infrastructure. So that was, I would say, you know, a big piece of why we built. It wasn't like connecting to, and we use MasterCard for acceptance, right? So, so you know, our card is accepted everywhere. MasterCard is accepted, but all the technology around, you know, the issuing, you know, the approvals, the the credit lines, everything is kind of like built within Brex. And then when we built the kind of like spending software, right? Like our thesis was, look, the reason this is different than Concur and others is because we have the integration between the financial services and the software, we can make it a lot better. So we can make sure that like your card only works, for example, for the expected policy for it to work. So in a lot of our customers, instead of only the top VPs getting corporate cards, you know, there's like, there's a customer that has 10,000 corporate cards around the company and everyone gets a corporate card because there's enough kind of like security features and controls and policies built into it that is, you know, it's safe for everyone to kind of like use it. And I think like travel, you know, it's, again, it's more on the software side, but there's a lot of the kind of like leveraged infrastructure from the expense side, right? Like all the approvals are pretty similar. The integration of your accounting software is pretty similar. 
all of that we kind of reuse on the travel side. But then uh, we, we have a partner actually called Spotnana that has a lot of the kind of like integrations of the airlines and like, you know, integration of the hotel networks and does all that kind of like back end of the travel side while we do a lot of the front end of the approvals and, you know, the payments and, and, and all that. Yeah, that's what I'm kind of drilling down into here. There's a set of back-end financial services or travel services, and then it seems like Brex is just a much better, more streamlined, more controllable interface to a lot of things that are kind of antiquated in the back-end. I would agree with that a little bit more for travel. For financial services, really, like a lot of it, we rebuild from scratch. We don't interact okay. like MasterCard, you know, is the acceptance network. So I would say that, yes. But like other than that, we don't interact with any other backend thing that's outdated. Okay. And, and Empower is the new thing that we should talk about. That's the thing you're announcing today. So, so travel is actually the, the, the new thing. So travel yeah. is the kind of like the news um, that we're announcing. Okay. So when I, hold on to that. I want to come back to it. I just yeah. want to get a sense of Brex the company before we go into the news and and why you're building up into travel. So you talk about building up the financial system from scratch, writing all your own code. I'm looking at the history of the company. You and your co-founder started this at YC as a VR startup. How did you pivot into banking and fintech services? Yeah. So um, the story I can start a little bit before. So my co-founder and I were originally from Brazil. And uh, last year of high school, we were teenagers that coded and we started a payments business in Brazil. That was like the stripe of Brazil. So I'd say like FinTech was our first kind of like company that, you know, did fairly well. So we sold that company. And then we got to the US, we were like, you know what, we're tired of FinTech, all these banks and regulations. And, you know, we don't want to do that anymore. We want to do something the bleeding edge of technology, like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and all, you know, the visionaries that were in Silicon Valley and VR kind of came to mind as like, you know, the next kind of computing platform. But a couple of weeks into YC, we got into YC with this VR idea. We decided to give up. We had no idea what we were doing. We're like, <laughs> okay, FinTech, we actually know uh, what we're doing. You know, we've kind of built this company before. We know a lot about credit cards. So that seemed like a, a lot better kind of like space for us to execute on. So you, you start with credit cards. There was a, a bit of a consumer focus to start with and then this pivot to enterprise why the focus on enterprise and now what you're calling a spend platform? Yeah, so when we started out, uh, the, the, the focus was startups. So it was like technology companies and you know people who are like venture backed and raised from the VC money. So the whole like innovation economy. We started there uh, because we had this novel underwriting model. We could underwrite companies based on their cash balances instead of their FICOs. And that was very innovative in the market because you know, Amex and others, they were always looking either your FICO financial history, you didn't have financial history and your FICO only get you a $10,000 limit. So if you needed to pay for more stuff, you know, even if you had raised $5 million, you couldn't get a corporate card. So that's kind of what we came in to solve and say, okay, we'll underwrite you based on your cash balances instead of FICO and financial history. So that was the first value proposition. And it only worked for venture-backed companies because the only thing that was different from the other things was the fact that we were underwriting that way. And then what happened was uh, a lot of these companies grew, right? Like we start, we, we acquired a lot of companies in 2017, 2018 that, you know, five years later, they're like bigger companies. And as they become, you know, like Scale AI comes as a good example, you know, they're like, you know, hundreds if not, you know, over a thousand employees now. They were our first customer. They had two people when they joined. And now they're, they're big. So as they grew, they needed kind of like new functionality. Uh, the first thing we started by getting asked was these kind of like business accounts, right? Then they're like, okay, like I can't give corporate cards like this for everyone. We need controls. We need policies. We need all that. 
So that's kind of how we got into spend management. So a lot of it was kind of like growing and developing of our customers. So this is going to bring us to Silicon Valley Bank in short order, right? Because this yeah. I, this identification of a market that is venture-backed companies where you can evaluate them differently is what got that bank into trouble. And it, like I said, it's a challenge and an opportunity for you. But before we get there, I want to ask sort of the classic decoder questions. So Rex makes a few products. You're entering a new product line. My joke with decoder is that it is fundamentally a show about org charts. So how is Brex structured? You're the CEO, you're the co-CEO. What does your org chart look like? So the way Brex is structured is, you know, traditionally uh, we're functional. Uh, we still haven't moved, I would say, to business units or anything like that. So we have product and you know, product engineering, sales, comms, HR, you know, like kind of like some of the functions directly reporting to my co-CEO, Pedro. And, uh, I, you know, within the product engineering orgs, you know, we have like what we call the global financial services. So this is kind of what we say, like, this is like the fintech backend, all the payments. So across all these products, they have kind of like a similar way to move money around the world, right? So that's kind of like one big team that we have. Another big team that we have is called Empower, which is basically like all these like approval flows, our budgeting functionality, integrations, all the software layer that kind of like creates like the, the platform for, for all these financial services and ways to purchase. Then we have like our travel team that, you know, it's its own team that builds like a lot of the travel because it's like different enough from everything else we do. Then we have what we call customer journey team, which is this is like onboarding, you know, KYC, AML, all the kind of like experiences the customer have that go besides the core products, you know, and the journey from you getting into the website, they own like our homepage all the way to like the notification systems that they get, you know, the messages. And then we have foundation, which is kind of like core infrastructure engineering team that works on infrastructure, developer productivity, security, compliance, et cetera. Those are probably like our core product teams. And then unusually, you have a co-CEO. You mentioned him already. His name is Pedro. Yeah. How do you divide up the work with your co-CEO? Because that that relationship doesn't always work. Yeah, no. And look, we've been working together for 10 years now, and it works really well. So the way we do it is we do internal versus external. So uh, I have zero direct reports, which is amazing. <laughs> I'm not that great of a manager. The dream. And I do everything external. So from fundraising, big customer meetings, partnerships, press, you know, et cetera. So a lot of times people want to meet the CEO of Rex, right? And that's a lot what I do. And I think it's especially kind of relevant, especially as we go more into enterprise, there's just a lot of customer meetings. And uh, Pedro, uh, he runs the company. So, um, you know, every exec reports into him and, uh, you know, he manages the company. He does all the internal work, all hands, you know, manage. He, and Pedro, which is very different. Pedro like loves systems, you know, like he loves optimizing the incentives and the people and the org charts. And like, he loves all that, you know, and I, I don't like any of that. Um, <laughs> I like, you know, meeting new people and, you know, creativity ideas, et cetera, et cetera. So it works well, kind of like the combination of both of us. Walk me through just like a typical scenario here. So you go out, you meet with a big customer. They say, look, we need X, Y, and Z feature in the product in order to onboard 10% more of our company. You say, great, done. I'm the external person. You go back. You tell your co-CEO, all right, we got to build this feature. Or is that a discussion? How does, I mean, he obviously has finite resources. How does that work? Yeah, I would say that like, you know, it's a little bit more, well, the teams are more involved these days in these things. So hopefully like this is, I think the way more it works, I'll give a very current example, right? Like 
SVB happened. We're gonna, I know we're going to get into that. We're discussing how is this going to change the world? Like what is going to change in relation to how people think about banking and people think about things? And I go to talk to a lot of customers and hey, I get some insights and I tell him, hey, I think we should do this differently based on that. We debate, we discuss, we get some sort of agreement. And then, you know, he kind of like gets all the teams aligned and, you know, on, on executing on kind of like the changes that we decided. It was a little bit like the features in the past. Right now, the teams talk to customers directly and kind of get the features and scope it out and prioritize. But I'd say like product strategy, for example, is one of the, the main things that, you know, we both discuss and debate and kind of get to conclusions a lot. So this brings me to the classic decoder question, which is you're the co-CEO. You've obviously founded a number of companies. You have a partner that you've worked with for a long time. You've made a lot of decisions with SVB. You just had to make a lot of decisions. What is your framework for making decisions? How do you make decisions? I'd say we're very big on three things. One is we thoroughly agree with the Jeff Bezos, the metric that matters the most is kind of long-term free cash flow per share, right? So I'd say financially, that's always what we're optimizing for. And we're trying to like make decisions to optimize that. I would say number two is, you know, we're, we're very selfish in this regard, but we really want to build a company that we want to work for over the next 10 years. That's the thing. And we optimize like, okay, like which company do I, I think I can keep working for a long period of time because I like the culture, I, you know, I think it's good and I think it's impactful. And what does that need to be true for me to be happy, you know, working on this company for a long period of time? And we, you know, for both of us, we, we optimize around, around that. And then three is, you know, we really believe in that, the kind of like capitalism that is not all about shareholders, but stakeholders of, hey, uh, it's not all about making money, but you need to really make customers happy, make your employees happy, make you happy. And I think like some some balance of these three things is probably how we, we think about most decisions. Those things are obviously always intention, right? How do you make a decision when free cash flow per share is in tension with stakeholder capitalism? Uh, it's very hard to say in the abstract, right? Like it's not like a one size fits all. I think that a lot of times in business, you know, a lot of people want to have a lot of frameworks that fit. And the reality is like, each situation is a situation, you know, and it's hard to create like a generalizable rule for everything. And those things in theory, they shouldn't compete as much because like, you know, if you do the right by your customers or employees over a long period of time, you know, you think it does optimize for the free cash flow per share. Uh, but sometimes you can't be that long term, right? You need to be shorter term and you need to make these optimizations. And I think it depends a lot in situation by situation. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll get into the Silicon Valley Bank meltdown. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote-unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash 
decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back with Enrique Dubagras. We were just talking about how he makes decisions. All right. Well, that does now bring us to SVB, which may be the ultimate short-term decision-making moment for a lot of CEOs, yeah. especially fintech CEOs in your position. We talked about your market opportunity, right? There's a there's a pool of customers with strange needs, hard to quantify, hard to assess their risk. That's your market. That was very much Silicon Valley Bank's market. This was a challenge for you. You put a bunch of money into the bridge bank that they created in order to, to show your confidence in that leadership. You helped a lot of your customers through the bank run, through making payroll, all that chaos of that one. It was a very strange weekend to be at South by Southwest, I have to say. Um, yeah. And just hearing everybody talking about it. But it is also a pretty massive opportunity for you. So I want to just start with your experience of a bank run, which is a I think very few people have lived through it the way that you might have lived through it. And I want to talk about what that opportunity represents. But walk us through Silicon Valley Bank. Did you see it coming, right? We're hearing reports the regulators actually might have been giving warnings. Did you see it coming? Honestly, no. I wish I could say I saw it coming, but I didn't. I would say I was even skeptical. And it was interesting. So it was Thursday morning. We realized that on Wednesday, we, we got like a weirdly high number of deposits. Probably one of the <laughs> highest we've ever gotten. How much money was it? It was at that point, it was like in the hundreds of millions of dollars in a day. Is there, do you have like a dashboard in your office and you're just like, yeah, yeah, like not in my office, but you know, we have a a dashboard and I just pull up every morning. Yeah. And we were like, why is this happening? This is kind of weird. And we started getting some text about SVB from investors. And then I called a couple of people that really understood about banking, like really, really solid bank people. And they said, everything's going to be fine. And like, okay, you know, like there's no one that I trust more than these people. They're like, literally like, you know, I, I won't say who it is, but I was like C-level of the biggest banks in the world. So then I called a couple of people who didn't really understand about banking, but seemed to be in the flow of stuff. And it was sending me these messages. And they all think the world was going to end and SVB was going to go bankrupt <laughs> and it was going to be terrible. And it was weird because like I understood about banking. So I, just, I, I pushed the arguments for them. And basically the only, like the argument like, look, Unless there's a 50 plus percent bank run, like they're going to be fine. And the, what's the probability of a 50 plus percent bank run? And then like I talked to the other people, I was like, yeah, dude, but like everyone I know is taking their money out. And I was like, okay, like maybe there's like a 5% chance that there's a 50 plus percent bank run. So, okay, maybe we will move our money out because we can always wire back on Monday. So, you know, why, why take the risk, right? So we took our money out. This is like maybe 10 a.m. Um, so an hour of all this. And then by 1 p.m., I was certain there was going to be a bank break. 
Everyone was talking about it. We've seen insane amount of deposits come in. When you said so, you were you were at hundreds of millions before. What's insane? And then it got to the billions, like in like three hours. We just thought it was like super. We had like so many people pinging me to open accounts because we could open accounts the same day versus like other banks took like a whole week to open accounts. So all like a lot of weird stuff, you know. And so I was like that at that point, I knew something was going on and it was going to be bad. So we worked a lot to just like mobilize the company to open the accounts. And, you know, that was a lot of work. Next day I wake up, FDIC receives it. And that was really weird because it was like, oh my God, like I didn't think it was going to get to this point, you know, like I thought they were going to, they had this capital raise, they had this call. I thought they were going to like not be able to raise the capital, you know, but like not that they were going to become insolvent and the FDIC is going to take over the next day. Like I didn't think it was going to be that quickly. So that happened and all these customers and we had gotten billions of previous day in the past. The next day we got zero and really not zero, but like maybe like low hundreds of millions from other banks. It was because basically they had blocked all the wires and ACHs. This is before the FDIC. I think it was 11 a.m. FDIC announced. And then all these customers started going crazy. Like, what am I going to do? I couldn't get my money out on time, my payroll. And that's when we started working on the emergency payroll line. And I think we were very uniquely positioned to do that because we talked to a lot of hedge funds and they wanted to help, right? Like you understood the situation. These are good companies, right? Like these are like solid companies that would get most of their money back, but they just needed a bridge for a few weeks, you know, potentially. But they like, I'm a hedge fund. I can't operationalize lending to like a thousand different companies. So we were pretty unique because one, we could operationalize that. And two, even if you could operationalize it, they only had a Silicon Valley bank account. So who could even open an account for them to get it? So we <laughs> could open an account to actually deposit the money as well. Then we raised all this money, you know, like over a billion dollars we had we had raised. And then we were about to pull the trigger. And then the FDIC announced that people were going to have access to their money the next day. A lot of wasted work, but never been happier to waste work in my life. What's a normal day of deposits for you, right? So the first tick up is hundreds of million. You call that weird. And then you're into the billions. And you said that was crazy. What's a normal day of deposits for you? I would say like a normal day would be in the low hundreds of millions, like maybe like 100 million, 200 million uh, of inflows and then some outflows, you know, then it got to like 500 million, you know, kind of like in one day, which is like high, but not like insanely high. It's like 5X. It's like a lot, but it's not like, like it was, you know, the next day. Yeah. And then it goes to zero, right? Or like yeah. almost nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like, yeah, maybe like 200 million, but for, from other banks, not from SUV. Sure. So just one thing that I think about all the time is just scale, right? This is a wild swing in demand that you can't have foreseen even in the space of a day, right? You start the morning, smart people are saying this isn't going to happen. You end the day and it has extremely happened. How did your site stay up? How did the service stay up? Because we see other companies in similar situations. In particular, I'm thinking about Robinhood. Like when I think about other bank runs and other financial providers in the middle of extremely unpredictable financial events. The first one that comes to mind is, is Robin hood. And you know, they were not able to stay afloat. Like they, the, the service kept crashing. Why did you stay? Yeah. I think it's just like B2B versus B2C, right? Like, yeah, yeah, even though like we had a lot of accounts to open, it was like 4,000 accounts, not, you know, 400,000, right? Like I think that's like, I think just the scale levels of B2C are just like different and like money coming in. There's not a lot of, servers that process that. It's just like a bigger number coming in. You know, it's not like there's like 5 million people trying to trade, you know? 
So, so it's really just the um, it was a smaller number of users doing bigger transactions, but the, the it was the larger than average, but it wasn't like you know hundreds of thousands, right? Like where we would have any scale issues, you know. It was, uh, it was fine. That piece was fine. The other question I have just as it relates to SVB. There's this line out there. This is the first bank run caused by Twitter. Right. And maybe it's Twitter and maybe it's a bunch of signal chats or group chats or iMessage DMs. But the speed of information coupled with the ease of use of their app, of their service, basically created the opportunity for a bank run. If they had made people wait an hour or a day or a week instead of just clicking a button and moving the money, maybe this gets averted. You obviously run a financial product. You take deposits. Have you had the moment, like the stare into the ocean moment of like, maybe my shit's too easy to use and like, I need to make sure it puts some friction in there to prevent this from happening? I think it would even cause more chaos if it was actually harder. Yeah. If people feel that their money is trapped, you know, they create even more panic. I I don't think that like that would have prevented if, you know, people were to there was just to be more friction in, in the process because like if you feel your money is stuck you know like that's that's the worst thing that can happen i think that like what it would have prevented is that if it was like a more diversified deposit base right yeah. so i think like first republic's probably a good example where they have a way more diversified deposit base so they had a lot of people in tech getting out of first republic but at the same time you know all the regular you know I don't know, high, like a high net worth dentist were not in the flow. <laughs> um, they weren't taking their money out. The thing with SVB is like everyone just talked to each other in one day and everyone yeah. just got all their money out in one day. Is this something you think about? You got to go collect some high net worth dentist to use Brex? No, because we're not a bank. It's different. So this okay. is the difference between a cash management account and a bank. So if you think about how a bank works, it's like this. You deposit your money there in a checking account. And you're giving them the right to do whatever their regulators allow them to do with your money. So in the, the CB's case, besides doing a bunch of loans, which was not the issue, by the way, their own loans were fine. They bought these 10-year securities that they had to hold, you know, hold to maturity. So therefore, when people try to take the money out, they couldn't sell these securities. So you know, then they went insolvent because they don't have enough cash uh, to, you know, to, give, to support all the withdrawals. At Brex, I'm not a bank, so I'm not allowed to do whatever I want with the money. The only thing I'm allowed to do is allow you to do what you want with your money. And you own the underlying securities. So if you, you know, for example, we offer money market funds, you can buy money market funds in Brex and you own the shares of those money market funds. If you want to sell that immediately or if you want to buy longer term stuff, that's on you and you're taking that risk, not Brex. We're not deciding that. So because we're not a bank, so we can't use your money for anything. Does that make sense? It does. I think this leads to an extremely dumb question, which is, how do you then make money? We charge very small percentage to buy that money market fund for you as kind of like a broker. So there's a big debate about allowing people to bank with their brokerage agencies, right? Like, I would say this is like a 50-year debate about financial policy, about whether to expose people to this kind of risk, where you should regulate the banks more tightly. You're obviously on the farthest end of it. Right, you're saying actually you don't need a bank, put it in a Brex, trade your money in the back end. Money market funds are very safe, so you'll probably be fine. But we can expose you to a lot of risk, and that'll keep you away from bank runs in case the bank is poorly managed. But aren't you just moving the risk 
to the customer pretty directly in that case? Yeah, but at least you get to pick your own risk, right? And think that as a business, actually, there's a lot of like, so when you know I have a company, usually there's an investment policy that you can only invest in certain categories of things. And our investment policy, for example, is pretty strict. We can only invest in like, you know, I think at least like double A securities with like, you know, up to like three months of liquidity. And like, there's like a lot of regulation that we have internally that the board needs to approve anything that's not this. And it's pretty standard of venture capital deals that you do this because they obviously don't want customers making these mistakes, trying to make money, um, you know, buy Bitcoin if they're cash and, and have an issue with it. So I think that this is something that, you know, you give the customer your own. And, and the thing is, like, if you look at SVB or JP Morgan, most big companies, they don't keep their money in checking accounts. They all keep it in money market funds because they trust U.S. treasuries. That's mostly what's in money market funds way more than they trust, you know, the banks that they're holding in. So that's already the reality for the majority of like large companies. That's the reality, right? But there's no, what's the backstop for you, right? I mean, these are not necessarily FDIC in short accounts. There's some amount of that happening. But if there's a run on Brex, what keeps the company together if all of your revenue comes from these transaction fees? Most of our revenue comes from credit card fees. Okay. So I would say if there's a run on Brex, we lose some revenue, but it's probably less than 20% of it. And you get all your money out day one. And obviously sucks. Like 20% of your revenue is a lot. You know, we'll screw up our growth numbers, but that's it. That's what happens. Um, everyone can get their money out day, same day, no issues. And then I'm looking at a story from 2021 in TechCrunch. It says you filed to actually become a bank. You hired somebody from Silicon Valley Bank to, to run that bank. What happened there? I would say that like this was at the time where I would say our strategy was a little bit less clear. We were thinking that we might want to get heavier into the process of like Issuing loans ourselves. And the biggest advantage of being a bank is that you can get deposits and initial loans. Um, I would say as our strategy evolved and we realized we didn't need to issue loans to be successful, and that was not as part of the strategy, the overhead of being a bank wasn't working for us. So this is, when I say this is an opportunity for you, right? There was that moment of panic. You said a, a lot of wasted work, but you're happy you did the wasted work. The opportunity is that SVB exists as a sort of bridge bank, and we'll see if it turns into a real bank. The big banks are out there. They're, they've hoovered up a bunch of customers. There's a lot of uncertainty about the First Republics of the world and other mid-sized regionals. And there's certainly no one that understands the startup economy, the venture economy, as well as Brex does. Is that your opportunity now to go fill the hole and say, look, we're we're not a bank, but we're really close to banking services and we can just do this stuff for you and we'll just take over all of Silicon Valley Bank's market share? I think that the opportunity for us um, is a little bit different. I think that the big change for customers is that I think before people wanted to concentrate all their banking relationship in one bank. So what was the biggest thing about Silicon Valley Bank was that, look, you come with us and we can do your checking account, we can do your credit card, we can do your private banking for you and your executives, we can manage all the money if you wanna invest in treasuries, we can give you loans, we can introduce you to VCs. Yeah. So a customer that only wants to have one banking relationship, they will go with the bank that can provide you know, all the jobs to be done, right, for that customer. I think that the world, the market is gonna evolve now for, People who want to have multiple banking relationships and they don't actually necessarily need to have 
all the jobs to be done with like one specific partner. They can actually split it among different partners. And they want to do that because VCs are pushing them to have multiple relationships and diversify their money, right? Like because they, they're traumatized by it. They want to have operational redundancy. Wait, just to be clear, that's happened in the last two weeks. That's not, yeah. right? Like three weeks ago, this was not the case. Three weeks ago, it's not going to hit, but it's the case right now, for okay. sure. Like especially in this ecosystem, I'm seeing like VCs, basically, I won't fund you if you don't have an account at like one of the big four banks. So, you know, that's like, one, it's, it's a problem for like a lot of people, but it's also an opportunity because now for Brex, for other neobanks, like you don't need to do everything to be able to win that relationship. You can win a piece of the relationship and that's okay. And you can win more over time. And I think that's like an opportunity because it was really hard for someone to come and say, hey, I'm going to do everything that these banks do. But it's a little bit easier to say, hey, I'm going to get a piece of that, you know, and I'm going to win a piece of it. How do you think about, you called Brexit a neobank, which is one of my favorite terms, because you're not a bank, but you're a neobank. Yeah. How dependent is the neobanking infrastructure, your infrastructure, on the traditional banking infrastructure? It does seem like we're going to get to a place where there's the big four banks and they're going to exist and that's what we're going to have. And then we'll have a lot of sort of neobanking services and competition to provide services on top of or near those banks. I think they're, you're pretty dependent, especially on payments. You know, like the, the government doesn't let anyone access uh, Fedwire or Nacha or any of the kind of like payment rails outside of the banks. So I would say that's probably where we're the most dependent. But on the KYC, the AML, all the custody of the money, because we're a regulator, broker, dealer, you know, we don't depend on banks to do that. That's all, you know, our own kind of license um, to do that. You know, that's part of the reason where we set, why we send the money to SVB. We think it's pretty bad if the world is like, hey, it's the big four banks and that's it, right? Like the reason SVB existed, the same reason City National Bank exists is because they really understand the need much better yep. um, than the big banks. And I, I really, you know, not only for, but like for real lending, right? Like venture debt, for example, just to get an example, like SVB did that better than any other bank in the country. And I think it's going to be really hard. Like, I think that's going to, be way worse for customers if they're not around, right? And I think there's a lot of stuff like that, that these kind of like regional banks that understand specific niches, you know, and can be like a lot more tailored and the small banks that can be a lot more tailored. They're an important piece of the American banking system. And I come from Brazil where we only have few big banks and, you know, guess what? The service sucks, right? That's why like <laughs> Nubank uh, in Brazil is doing so well because the competition is so bad. Versus I think in the U.S., the fact that you have like so many different banks and they're tailored to their different community, their different verticals, I think that's really positive for the customers. You talked just now about, you know, VCs in particular making new demands of their founders, diversifying where they're doing their banking, the opportunity for you. But now you're, you know, you, you've mentioned and I've, I've certainly heard, look, SUV was the center of this ecosystem. Like you didn't have to think about it. You just did your banking here. You were connected into a financial ecosystem that at least understood what a founder needed or would give you a mortgage to buy a house against the sort of weird, shaky founder finances that many early stage startups have. What do you think happens to this ecosystem now without this bank? Do you think this bank comes back and survives? Do you think that the VC sort of attitude, the investor attitude of needing to diversify changes it forever? What, do you, what, what happens to this community? I don't know. I think it depends a little bit of what happens to the bank in, in this next week or two. 
depends who the buyer is, right? If they sell the bank to someone who wants to preserve the brand, preserve the franchise, preserve the, you know, the customers in the ecosystem, I think there's a chance, you know, we can get a lot of what we still had. I think still people will want still redundancy. I think no one wants to be stuck in that weekend again. That weekend was pretty terrifying for a lot of people. But I think we can still get a lot of the benefits. But if they get bought by someone who just wants to integrate them in their brand, buy the loan book, you know, kind of just buy the assets and, you know, and, and kind of like a financial transaction, but that doesn't want the franchise, I think we lose a lot of it. So I think a little, it will depend a little bit on, on what's going to happen. I have to ask this question uh, mostly because talking to you makes me feel very old. You're 26. The last time 27 now, 27 now. All right. Uh, I'm not, I don't have gray hair in the spirit. I vividly remember the financial crash of 2008, right? And just a lot of people confidently getting something very important, very wrong. This has echoes of it. And it does not, I'm probably wrong about this. Who knows? But it does not feel quite as catastrophic overall as the 2008 situation. But banking and finance is an old industry, right? It's a lot of relationships. It's a lot of older folks. You're very young. You're sitting on billions of dollars of inflows. You're calling the C-suite of major banks for advice. How are you handling that? How are you handling that pressure? Does it feel natural to you? Or does it feel like a lot of people are waiting, I don't know, for you to show up at a rave and be 27 years old? Um, I think, you know, look, I've been working since I'm 14. So even though I'm 27, I've been working for 13 years full time, you know, kind of in tech. So I think there is some of it that is just the only kind of adult life that I know of, right? So it's not like I have anything else to compare to. So I think that's kind of like a point. But at the same, the other side is like, look, banking is a really old industry. And I think like a lot of what people say about startups is that it takes naivete and it takes ingenuity, right? Because if we knew how hard it was, we wouldn't have started it. And I think that's true. And I think, look, a lot of people understand more about banking than we do. Like, I, I won't say I'm an expert, but I would say probably very few people understood about the, the customers that we serve in the startup ecosystem. You know, Silicon Valley Bank, probably the only one that did. So I think that, you know, old industries are really good at what they did, but they're really bad at adapting to new markets. You know, you can see that with Gen Z, right? Like all these different brands now cater to Gen Z and the old brands struggle to adapt and that <laughs> happens every new generation. So. I think that's still going to be true and we're going to be old someday and there's going to be some next gen, you know, that is going to be understanding the next generation. And we're going to be like, oh, this makes no sense. I already feel old. I'm a millennial. I already feel that this Gen Z makes no sense to me. So you are the farthest thing from an older millennial. <laughs> uh, is that your opportunity, right? In addition to SVB failing and you can go capture some share from them in addition to taking some points of share from the big banks because people want to diversify, is that your overall opportunity? Do you see Brex growing into just like a dominant provider of banking services for young companies across the board? No, I see Brex growing to spend management uh, across every industry. And, um, you know, if we look at the direction we're going, like this banking stuff happened, a lot of people are talking to us about it, but like a lot of our core business is corporate cards, spend management, yeah. replacing Concur. And we're doing that for companies across every different segment. And, you know, providing service. And that's why, like, you know, we compete a little bit of SGB, but we also want them to survive because it's it's honestly like a small part of our business. Yeah. Um, a lot of our business is not that. I think a lot of people are thinking that that's your opportunity. Are you feeling that pressure? 
when I told people that I was going to talk to you today, people, like a lot of, a lot of what I got was ask him if he can, if he can replace SVB, which I think is just like a yeah. fascinating, people see that as your opportunity, but you're pushing back on that pretty hard. Yeah. Again, like I think SVB was, was very unique and it was built in a generation and with the set of constraints and, you know, there, there's a lot that made SVB what it was. And I think hopefully they still can provide, but I think that our opportunity Again, look, in my view, it's, it's much larger than the startup ecosystem. I think like if we look about, you know, around like, you know, managing spend and fintech uh, globally, you know, credit cards and payments for companies all over the world and companies, you know, of all different sectors, I think there's a lot of places to disrupt there. And we started with startups because they're early adopters and they're great. But I would say a lot of the issues that startups have, you know, we have companies that are 500, 1,000 people, traditional industries that have the same issues. People hate their expenses. You know, they, they also want a better UX for their banking. There's, it, it kind of goes across, you know, a lot, of different, uh, a lot of different industries. We have to take one more quick break. We'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're back with Brex CEO, Henrique Dubigras. All right, so let's talk about your news, which is actually in spend management. It's pretty exciting. I have to say our reporter who covers what we call weird money, Liz Lopato, hates concur with a burning passion. So I went and said to Liz, what should I ask the CEO of Rex? And all, it's all just about how shitty concur is, which is amazing. That's your competitor, right? You've mentioned concur by name is a, is a dead ahead competitor. It has a huge amount of market share. It is not a great user 80% experience. 80% market share. It is not a great user experience. And now you're launching a new new set of products to take over more of travel, which is a lot of what Concur will do, right? You, you go on a trip, you need to book the trip 
you need to spend money on the trip and then you need to file your expenses on the trip. What's the new product and how does it help you take on Concur? Absolutely. So before this launch, you could do uh, corporate cards and expenses on Brex, but you still have to book your travel either on some OTA, Google Flights, Expedia, et cetera, or you would have some other kind of travel management company, uh, you know, like uh, Navon or Trip Actions, for example, or even Concur. Now we can replace all of it and have like all your trips, your TD in one place. So the experience would be, let's say you want to go from New York to San Francisco, you would do a few things. So the first thing is you would go and you would request a trip. So you go say, hey, can I go to San Francisco? And that would go to your manager that has an overall budget for their department. So let's say, you know, the department, I'm going to call it uh, the podcast department. Okay. <laughs> um, and the podcast department has a podcast department notoriously swimming in travel money. Exactly. The exactly. They have a hundred thousand dollars a uh, quarter and T&E budget for, the, you know, the, the, the podcast department, very well funded department. And the manager will look in your trip and, you know, oh my God, you know, there's like a $5,000 budget here. I have a hundred thousand dollars. Do I think this is worth, you know, my budget? They would say yes. Or let's say here she said, yes, uh, you get, you know, availability for that trip. Now you can go on Brex, you can go on their mobile app and search for your flights and your hotels. You can just book them. We will show you if they're in policy or out of policy. So it's very easy for you to know what you can or can't book. You would book those flights. And then now you have your Brex card that's now authorized to spend within that budget. Every restaurant that you swipe, you don't need to get a receipt. That automatically be there. You don't need to put a memo. Everything is there. So you can just swipe away and that's it. And then you get to your hotel, you do your trip, you come back. We would automatically get the receipt from that hotel so you don't have to actually like worry. You can just walk out and check out. And if all your expenses were in budget and in policy, you didn't spend anything out of policy, it's already like approved and your manager doesn't even need to look at it. It just goes through because if it's in budget and policy, why do you have your manager like kind of like review everything, right? So that would, you know, and that's the kind of like overall experience. And the reason that's important for companies that this experience is really good is for two reasons. The first one is the one I mentioned about the budget is a lot of people want to decrease travel costs. And the best way to decrease travel costs is not getting your people to travel figure, right? Like it's say, <laughs> now you have to take two stops to go. It's actually by just doing less trips. And by giving managers that visibility and say, hey, this is your budget. You need to decide how you're going to use this. We actually see that people saying no to trips and say, actually, like, we don't have enough budget for you to do this trip. I'd rather spend it on that. And, you know, if you can keep give visibility and empower people to make decisions of how they think it's better for the business, it's the best way to actually manage and reduce travel costs. So that's like the number one thing. The second thing is a lot of issues that companies have with travel is the adoption. It's like people go and they just don't use Concur. They just book it outside and then reimburse it. And then you just don't have visibility of what's happening. You have no control. It's harder to see if it's in policy. And we believe that, you know, we believe, no, we see that if we make it so easy for the employees, there's so, it's so much easier for them to just do it, everything in the Brex app. They actually adopt it more. So the adoption of these travel kind of like products is a lot higher across the organization instead of having them leak to Google Flights or Expedia or others. And the last thing that I'll say, actually two things. So another way to help prevent that leakage, and I don't know if you ever had the experience of like you go on Concur, and we actually had a lot of customers from Trip Actions tell us this. They go to the, like these competitors and they like try to find a flight and then they go to Google Flights, they find something cheaper. And you're like, oh my God, what's happening? Like, why am I always finding cheaper stuff? And the reality is like, you know, a lot of these companies, they know that travel, like airlines and hotels, they know that travel buyers, they're less price sensitive. So they actually pay these companies to not show 
the cheapest stuff because they know that they will they would buy it anyway. That's pretty bad. So what we do is like we just are completely unbiased. Like we don't take any of that money, and that's not part of our business model. We have a lot of other ways we make money, and we just show a completely unbiased inventory. So we don't have the question of like, oh yeah, like you know, I can find it cheaper on Google Flights. You know, you can find everything on Brex that you can find on Google Flights. So I think like that also helps the kind of like adoption of the product because everyone now can find all the flights. And uh, and lastly, I would say is global. Like as organizations go global, let's say you're flying to India and you need to like go to some city that needs a like you know a low cost airline that does that route. A lot of these companies don't have you know these travel agencies. They don't have those like low cost you know local airlines. And you know our partner that we partner with integrated with all of them, so we actually have all this like global capability. So you can you know travel globally and serve your global employees. Uh, much better as well, build them in different currencies, et cetera, et cetera. So those are kind of like some of the key reasons customers, you know, choose our travel products. Put that into practice for me. I'm on a trip. I've got a Brex card. I've booked the flight using your service. I'm going out to a restaurant. The policy says I can eat McDonald's, but I'm going to go swipe it at a steakhouse. Does you just see that I'm spending too much money and decline the card? How does that work? Uh, depends on how the company configures it. Some are more stricter than others. I would say though, like our recommendation is you actually let people swipe it. A lot of times they have a good reason for it, but that then goes for approval because it's out of policy. So when the manager is looking, instead of looking to 200 transactions that they don't have time to see, they only see, Hey, these ones are out of policy. This is why it's out of policy. You know, do you want to approve it or not? And if they don't want to approve it, we have a very easy way to revert that and actually charge the employee, you know, discount from their payroll or bank accounts you know, if it's supposed to be kind of like personally paid. So we make that flow kind of like much easier. Some companies decide to say, hey, I'm not going to approve it. We don't like that usually. We think employees in general have good intent and they're trying to do the right thing. And, you know, a lot of times they have a good reason for it or they don't know what the right thing is. So we prefer to be a little bit more flexible. Talk to me about going and making that sale, right? You're the external CEO. So you're you're showing up at a Fortune 500 company. They've deployed Concur. It's got 80% market share. There's literally nothing worse for any large company than an enterprise software change. They all hate doing it. Employees hate it. I hate My goal at work is to never use software again. Your product sounds amazing because it sounds like I actually mm-hmm. don't have to use very much software. You don't have to do anything. You just swipe. Just swipe around. It's just done. call my CEO and just let tell him to let me start swiping the company card. <laughs> uh, but you still got to sell it, right? There's a huge transition cost. There's a training cost. You got to send totally. out 50,000 new pieces of plastic or whatever. What's that sale like? What, what's your pitch? Are you going to save money? Are you going to make your employees happier? What's, what's the ROI on the big investment in switching over? It, it depends on the size of the company. I would say for the larger companies, uh, it's two things. Either saving money is like, hey, I have a T&E cost of X. I want to put it to Y. How does Brex help me take from X to Y? And, you know, the kind of like the budging stuff I was telling about, you know, we really help kind of like execute on that, et cetera. Or it's like, hey, I'm a big company. I'm already having trouble retaining employees. And they hate my app. They hate this. So <laughs> I want to like improve the employee experience because I get complaints about this all the time. Wait, do big companies really think that they're going to retain employees if they switch from Concur to Brex? I would say it's like they don't think it's like the only thing that's going to retain employees. But like, you know, it's part of the package. Like it's less bureaucracy. Like some of these big companies we're talking to, they have a head of debureaucratization. Like it's a product uh, out of the head of debureaucratization. 
That's the most Soviet thing I've ever heard in my entire life. I just want to be clear about that. I know. I know. But like, you know, you get these companies and like, you know, all these finance teams are making these decisions and they go oh too overboard in the controls. And then it just becomes impossible. And, you know, they want to make it better. And the other thing is like finance teams, they hate being the prevention of new business. You know, they hate being the person that's like, oh, let me put things so people can focus on my things versus doing their job. That's not what they want. They just want to do their job and have the right controls and make sure money's being spent appropriately. So when there's a, a tool that can both like help them add more controls and, you know, do their job, but still gets employee experience and they're kind of like a hero versus like they're like the villain that's like in the bad cop. They hate that bad cop feeling. So, you know, it, it works really well in that way. So as you expand, the new product is travel. You've also been working on it for a while. You say, okay, this is going to help us go get more of these customers, right? We're going to show up in more places. We'll increase the amount of business that we're doing, the number of transaction fees we're doing with our existing customers because it'll be simpler. And now I can show up and say, look, we can take even more of Concur or Agencia or whatever out of the mix and make this simpler. Is that how you think about investing in a new product area? This is going to solve more problems for our customers? Yeah, that's basically it. It's, not, it's, it's less about the revenue sources because like we already have a lot of them. Like It's not what we're missing, but it's like, we can have a end-to-end TNE experience for your employees, right? Like, so we can have everything integrated in one place. So we can literally just have the experience, request a trip. If it's approved, you just swipe and it's done. So I just want to come back to the, the opportunities in front of you right now. There's that one, which seems big. You seem very focused on it. But again, I, I told people, I'm going to go talk to Enrique. And they're like, see if Brex is going to take over for banks. And that is an opportunity that you just seem not focused on or you're disinterested in. Is it? that problem is too hard to solve? Is it that's too much of a pivot? Is it the regulatory environment is not available for you to do that in the way that you'd want to do it? Why the focus on, all right, we're going to do end-to-end T&E and not, boy, a bunch of companies lost faith in the pillar of the Silicon Valley like venture funding system, and we could replace that too. I think there's a couple of reasons. The first one is if you look at the Silicon Valley PL, you'll see that 80 plus percent of it was what we call net interest income. So this is just love. If we're not a regulated bank, we are structurally in a worse place to make loans than banks. Mm-hmm. So we will always lose. So if you look at the market cap of Silicon Valley, a lot of it came from that. And we're just not in a structurally, a structural place to win that business. Okay. So that's one. Second piece of it is if you exclude that, right? I think that after this, it's not going to be like, let me put all my money in a fintech. That's not going to be like the kind of flight to safety that people are going or not like flight to fintech. It's going to be flight to even bigger banks. So it's like a very hard battle to win of like, hey, I actually want you to keep all of your money, <laughs> um, you know, and Brex. Uh, it's like kind of like an uphill battle. So then when we look at then, you know, okay, so we take out all the loans, we take out all the management of like large pools of money. What are you left with from their PL? You're left with credit cards, FX, you know, accounts and wire fees, and a little bit of payments. That's all the stuff we do anyway. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Do you think that your exit is to a big bank? Do you think it's to going public? How, you're a startup yourself, right? Going public for sure. Going public for sure. Yeah, yeah, going public. Do you feel that it's a weird market right now? Do you feel pressure from your investors or VCs or whoever to push that forward? Or do you think you can wait? Look, we're six years old. I wouldn't say we're RVCs. You know, they still have most of their fund left. Uh, we don't feel any pressure. They're, you know, I would say 
I think if we were pushing 10, 11, 12 years, maybe, but at six, we have a good amount of time. And I got to end here. This has been a great conversation. We've talked a lot about the banking system. You have a unique perspective on it, right? You sit on top of it, next to it. You seem confident that you don't want to be of it. But people's faith in the overall banking system in the United States right now is a little shaky. It's shakier than it's been since, I would say, 2008. It's pretty shaky. Where, yeah. Where do you think it's going? Do you think we're going to make it through, or do you think we're going to end up with four big banks and that's it? I think it depends on the government, man. This is one of the things that government will have a huge amount of influence. I think if they really step in to say, hey, we're going to make sure that the regional banks and the small banks of America still have business after this, they can. It's going to be expensive. And there's other fights like inflation and other fights that they're they're fighting. But I think if they don't do anything, then we're going to get to where you're saying of like concentrate on even you know, smaller amounts of banks and getting the bigger, the big getting even bigger. So I think it's a lot on the government and we'll find out over the next few weeks. So that's an unusual point of view from, from Silicon Valley. I'm not saying that's unusual for you for, we have not talked about your politics for all I know, you love government regulation of the financial industry. Uh, I doubt it, I'm but probably depending on what I like, I'm pragmatic. It's what exists, you know, and banking yeah. is a regulated industry. So we're always dependent on the government for doing stuff. But there's another view out there, right? Which is, this is all a mess. The government's bad. We should just put all of our money into Bitcoin. And most of the other financial CEOs I've talked to on the show have been alternative currency CEOs. They've, they've been crypto CEOs. And there's a mu- it's unusual to me to talk to someone in your position, a financial services CEO, who is like, the government needs to step up and fix this so I can continue running my spend management business. Do you think there's another opportunity for the crypto industry, the alternative currency industry to actually replace some of this mess? Um, maybe, but not in the short term. Um, yeah. I would say over the long term, yeah. But the problem we have is this year, man. Like, uh, <laughs> That's right. It's right here, right in front of you. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's not like, definitely, I don't think crypto is ready for this, for the scale that this is. And, you know, the level of trust, right? Like we just had FTX, right? Like we just had, So I don't think we have the, like, I don't think crypto has a lot of trust right now either. And this is a trust issue. So uh, I don't, I don't think it's this maybe over the long term, but I don't think it's a solution for right now. Last question on this sort of philosophical note. I remember 2008. Well, you know, the conventional wisdom is that was the year the app store hit on the iPhone. There was a platform change. Uh, There were a lot of layoffs. A lot of smart people suddenly needed to build stuff, had the, means to build stuff. They went and built stuff for a new platform. This is where we saw a wave of gigantic companies get built. Do you think that's this moment again? Or do you think that the conditions are just not the same? I think this AI thing is big, man. I do think that's real. And I do think the world is going to look very different in five years than it did now, than it does now because of AI. Like I was playing GPT-4 and I was asking it to code. And dude, it was really good. You know, like I'm, a, I'm an engineer, like, <laughs> I was very impressed with what it built, you know, like with like a very easy prompt. I think that the cost of building software, the cost of building products, the cost of serving customers is going to massively reduce over the next five years. And we don't even, I can't even imagine what the world's going to look like. So I think this is going to, it's just going to change a lot. Yeah. All right. I ask everybody this to, to wrap up. What's next for Brex? What should we be looking out for? Well, I would say, you know, we're announcing travel today. 
So I would say, you know, keeping building more spending tools. So we want all your spend on Brex. So travel is, you know, what we have right now, but we're going more, we're going global, we're going larger. So just think more, more spend. Amazing. Enrique, thank you so much for coming on Decoder. We'll have to have you back soon. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Henrique Dubigross for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit us up directly on Twitter or on TikTok. We're at DecoderPod. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters, and our executive director is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.